This week's episode of Bradley's House, the podcast is brought to you in part by our friends at Humble Collective CBD. Last episode, you heard us talking with Sarah, Humble Collective CBD CEO and founder, explaining some of the products and some of the ways that you guys can find help with Humble Collective CBD. Now, we understand everybody's road to recovery is different, and whatever works for you, that's wonderful. But if you are using a CBD product now or have thought about replacing something with a CBD product, check out our friends at HumbleCollectiveCBD.com. Sarah's been a huge supporter of the show and the Knoll Family Foundation. And one of the ways that you can support this show is by supporting our sponsors. Visit their website. That's HumbleCollectiveCBD.com. You guys can choose from CBD oils and bath bombs and soaps, edibles and drinks, pre-rolls, tinctures, so much to choose from. And Sarah and her crew are so customer service friendly. They're there to answer any questions, any comments, any concerns that you may have about trying out your first CBD product, or maybe switching from the CBD product that you're currently using. Now, if you're thinking about trying out a CBD product from HumbleCollectiveCBD.com, Sarah and her crew set up a special code for our listeners here at Bradley's house. Guys, visit the website, pick out the product that you want, and use code SUBLIME and save big money off of your purchase. Again, guys, code SUBLIME at checkout. Let them know that Bradley's House Podcast sent you. Get all your CBD products and save yourself a little bit of money. Again, we wanted to thank our friends over at HumbleCollectiveCBD.com. Sarah and her crew, huge supporters of the show, and we ask you to check them out. And we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of Bradley's House, the podcast. I am your co-host, Jared Orr. She is the Noel Family Foundation's executive director and our wonderful host, Miss Kelly Noel. Kelly, how are you doing today? I'm fabulous. How are you doing, Jared? Oh, my gosh. If it's any better, I'd be jealous of myself, Kelly. Um, <laughs> I'm telling you, it's uh, it. yeah, it's a, it's the Super Sunday as we're recording this. So uh, I'm super excited about the big game later with my boys. Uh, but for right now, you have set up another amazing guest for us here in Bradley's house. Kelly, who are we hanging out with today? Our guest today is someone many people are eager to hear from, and I'm so grateful he's with us on the podcast. He's a drummer, DJ, producer, politician, and all-around great guy. Marshall Goodman, welcome, and thank you for being on the show. Hey, Kelly. Hey, Jarrett. Thank you for having me. Oh fun. man, thank you. This is this is awesome. I'm uh, I'm really excited, and I know that so many of the fans have been asking for this episode for so long. So, um, as a Sublime fan, I'm just uh, I'm excited to have you on. That's great. I'm glad to be here. I love these opportunities. Anytime to talk with the Sublime family, I I love it. So I'm right at home. This is going to be good. Awesome. Well, you've been such a huge part of the Sublime story and the music for years, as most people know, but there might be some people listening who aren't familiar with everything that you've done with Sublime and the Long Beach Dub All-Stars. So can you just give us a little bit of background about how all that came about? 
So I'll try to make it as short as possible. I'm long in the tooth warning, by the way. So however long you expected the show to be, expect it to go another hour because I love talking. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Um, Fabulous. <laughs> no, but um, so early on, my sister, Ruth Goodman, who has since passed, um, saxophonist, went to Wilson High School. Um, I believe she was Brad's age or maybe older. And um, they were in a band together called the sloppy second so my sister was known as her you know saxophone skills you know spread across long beach and whatnot she was known to be able to play and she had a lot of uh different styles of music locked in which you know reflected onto me as a youngster she was what three years older than me so brad and eric were in a band with my sister um again i don't know whose band it was but it was named Sloppy Seconds. That was kind of weird for my mom. I remember that. But my sister was in a band called Sloppy Seconds. But that's kind of the Long Beach thing. They come up with these real original names and you know, they have fun with it. It's just tongue in cheek. But um, they used to come to our house and practice. And at the time, I wasn't even playing drums. I was just, you know, I was 13, 14, and um, I was DJing. I had turntables. So I remember Brad came into the room one time. And, you know, was, was hearing me DJ. He's like, what is this? Let me, let me see what you do. So I put on some records and did what, um, what we call backspinning, which you make something on the record repeat. So it was the Rockberry Jam and, um, by the LA Dream Team. And so the beginning of the song has this sequence of this girl singing and she's repeating the cadence. And so what you do is you kind of, do these little weird repeats and, and whatnot with the backspins and all of that. And Brad was like, how are you doing that? Is that an echo? Where's the echo box? And I was like, no, it's just two records. And, you know, I was just showing him, use the fader. You go back and forth, you bring this one back, you know, and set it up. He's like, how do you know where to start it? Like he was totally into how it was happening and didn't understand it. So that was the first time I met him. And, you know, he doesn't hold, he didn't hold back. I mean, he was just like, when he had a question, he just jumped in and start asking and talking. Like, there's no, am I intruding or there's no hesitation. It was just openness and eagerness. And I was, I was actually drawn to that. So that was the first impression I had of Brad and it lasted. He was the same guy for the whole time I knew him. Yeah, Eric was, was in the very band. Brad. Yeah, absolutely. Um, lively. Eric was in the band and, um, he was in my, band class at Jefferson junior high school. And he was like this big, tall Frankenstein looking guy with eyeliner on the bottom of his eyes, like, you know, clockwork orange. And, um, he had on these big creepers. That's why I used to think of him as like a Frankenstein guy. Cause he had on these big, tall, big shoes, those creepers with the, you know, <laughs> fabric on the front, like suede or leather. Yeah. Um, yep. And we were in band class together in the drum section. And so when I saw him at the house, I was like, Hey, what's up, Eric? He's like, hey, what's up? You're Ruth's brother? I was like, yeah. So that was the introduction. And then in high school, I used to go to the backyard parties that Sublime would play at. And Bud, Eric, and Brad were, were, were the core of the band. We're, we're the band, pretty much. They, didn't, they hadn't met Michael or anybody yet. And um, just backyard parties. And, and me and my friends would get on the mic with, with Brad. He remembered me. I remembered him. And, of course, Eric. I knew Eric. And I'd get on the mic and kind of freestyle. and. We just have fun at these backyard parties. And so at that time I was playing drums. And so one time Bud was not there late or something or he left. 
arguing with his girlfriend. I don't know which one it was. It was always something, one of those three. Um, and Brad was a little like upset, like, come on, where is he? You know, what's going on? We need to play. I want to play. You know, again, there's that lively Brad. And so Eric was like, well, you know, Marshall plays drum. So I was like, okay, whatever. I'll jump in. Let's see what's happening. And just sat down on Bud's drums and played a little bit, just kind of jammed. And um, that led to Michael entered the scene. And when we would play those backyard parties, I, you know, again, I was freestyling and stuff. Um, we did uh, a session. Like they had some extra studio time when they were doing the John Won't Pay the Bills EP at Dominguez Hills. And they asked me to come. He said, just come. We got some extra time. Let's do some of that jamming that we do. So we went in there and, and that's where Live at Ease comes from. So we did basically kind of the backyard party thing. I just went, sat in on the drums, played the beat, and then we did some freestyles. Me and Brad and Eric got on there too because everybody was freestyling, like coming up with the song that night in like a couple hours. And that's Live at Ease. That's how we did that. And so and Eric really has an amazing that. verse on that, by the way. Eric, I mean, Eric the just, best verse. Yeah, man. Classic song. It's the best verse, you know, because me and Brad, when they're all working hard, you know, like, okay, let's say this and let's say, okay, yeah, I mean this and that. And Eric's like, man, you guys. And so he had to abide because Brad was like, come on, Eric, you need a verse too. Come on. And so he's like, all right, whatever. He didn't want to do it. He thought we were, you know, overkill. So he just did the perfect verse. It was the best in the song. No question. <laughs> you can tell he's super not enjoying it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he's always a good sport, though. Eric was always totally. a good sport. <laughs> Um, then it was kind of the same vibe through high school. And one day, you know, I, I got to know Brad pretty well during that period and he could see what I could do. Actually, he wanted me to, to give him some beats and stuff. I think before that. So I had this drum, he gave me this drum machine, this little pocket type drum machine. He said, program some beats on there. So I programmed some drum beats and dance hall beats and just regular, you know, backbeat. And um, I gave him back the drum machine. And I guess that's where the new song and like DJs, it was kind of like those are the ideas from what I'm assuming. Because when I programmed the beat and gave the, the drum machine to Brad, then DJs and, you know, new song came out on the John Won't Pay the Bills demo. And they sounded very similar. So I don't know if Bud just used him to get inspired or whatever, or if he didn't hear him at all. But I was doing that also in the background, um, even before I went in to do the live at East session. I remember Brad giving me that drum machine and asking me to program beats. I've talked before oh, about the first um, drum machine that he got, and he would just sit around and make beats for hours, hours. He'd be like, how about this one? Oh, check out this one. Oh, listen to this. Listen to this. <laughs> Yeah. He's very, very enthusiastic about it. But yeah, I love that stuff. Absolutely. Um, drum machines and samplers. You know, we got this rolling keyboard yeah. sampler and you would just sit and just make stuff on that all day. One one interesting point, um, I'm sure a lot of people know, but not everyone. But uh, waiting for Maruka, he did on that rolling keyboard sampler, he, you know, put in the 808 and the timbali and he played that beat while he was singing that song like that that was all like one take and then of course the backup wow. was the harmonies and stuff he did in another take but that whole song he did on his own playing and singing at the same time and, and it was on that rolling keyboard where he was hitting the you know the, the 808 on one key and then the timbali on another with both hands That's awesome. it, was, it was pretty incredible wow so 
in the background doing that stuff for John Won't Pay the Bills, you know, live at ease happened. And then we just started, we just became friends, you know, Brad and I. And so he asked me one day, he's like, hey, man, you want to come and play drums for the band? You know, we're having problems with Bud. So, and I remember it was real uncomfortable because uh, Bud would still be at the house in Naples. We'd go over there and practice. We'd set up in the in the front room there and practice. And then, um, you know, for me to learn all the songs to do some shows and, and just carry on. And uh, Bud would be sitting on the porch sometimes. And I didn't know, like, oh, man, you know, is this going to be a problem? You know, I'm walking in the house to practice. You know, I'm the drummer of this band now, but he's still here. I mean, what's going on? And every time I walked by him, he was just kind of, you just sit there. He wouldn't do anything. I don't know what was happening. I don't know if he was there, staying there, or if he was there to kind of protest. But I just remember that being a, a weird, awkward situation. But that's when I joined the band. And we started doing just, you know, backyard parties. Same thing as before. But, you know, now I was the, the drummer for Sublime. And we played Toe Jam and all these other local venues. And I remember the first show I did, I think it was out in either Fullerton or Anaheim. I can't recall. But there was a, I was wearing like a, a red flannel Pendleton type jacket shirt. And, um, Brad was on the, if you're looking at the video, he was on the right and, and Eric was on the left and they shot video of it. And, and it's cool. I think they used some footage in, in the recent, you know, documentary that happened. But, um, I remember playing and, and we rehearsed that was the first show we did and i was excited and they're like okay guys hit it and i was like wow you know now really and like yeah and i said we're just gonna play for the bartender and we're like yeah i guess so because no one was there there was no <laughs> one in the building wow. except michael the sound guy who was doing the video and the bartender and so that whole set was played and we just played i mean we just played music and it wasn't you know it was good, in my opinion. You know, it was kind of calm compared to when the crowd is going off, but we still played and it was good music. But that was the first show. We went on to um, do a tour uh, across or up to Washington first and a lot of cities in between. We always stopped in the armpit of America, Antioch, um, <laughs> Humboldt County. <laughs> Somebody from there told me that, too. He's the, the a guy from Antioch told me this is the armpit of America. <laughs> so we can get away with saying yeah, that. Yeah, that's why I said it right. I, I don't feel any certain way about Antioch. That's <laughs> a resident there's opinion on their own on his own city. So I'm just repeating what he said. I thought it was funny. Um, and then across to Florida, where Michael was living or his uh, parents were living in Antioch, and we took this or Antioch in Lakeland, and we took this van conversion that his parents lent him. And we took some of the captain's chairs out and left the bench and uh, set up like a hammock inside this to carry equipment. And we had a little rack on the top to put the drums in. We had Toby. We had uh, Louie. We had Forty. We had like a Rottweiler, Dalmatian, and this little beagle or whatever Toby was. Three dogs, a cameraman, me, Michael, Brad. It was just, it was your typical touring band. And... Um, Went across to Lakeland and stayed in New Orleans for a week with Michael's brother because the van broke down and then we stayed about a week or two in Lakeland. And um, I believe that was the first tour that Sublime did. So <laughs> it was great. And I mean, it was when I was like 19. Uh, what was that? Uh, 91. So we're talking 
was a little yeah. while ago. <laughs> 30 years ago. You know, I'm not really. You're, you're my age. You're, no, so, you're. So don't you're get a, too specific about how long you're ago a lot that younger was. Than me. I just, you are a lot younger than me. I'll date myself. I don't mind. No, but thank you for that. <laughs> I'm actually a few months older, but we'll yeah, just skip, skip that part. That. So that's where it comes to 40 Ounce of Freedom. When we got back, I think we recorded 40 Ounce of Freedom and pretty much did everything in one take because um, we were real tight. And, uh, you know, of course, we went back to do overdubs and vocals and different things like that. But um, from 40 Ounce to Freedom, we went on and, and continued doing some shows. Um, and around that time is when Brad kind of did a shift. I saw a shift happen with him and what he was using. And it, he went into the deep end. And so I started talking to him a lot because that's just the type of person I am. It's just, you know, the, the upbringing I had, it's like when somebody's struggling, you pull them to the side and say, Hey, you know, come here. Man. What are you doing? Whether it's messing with the street or messing with drugs or, or the wrong people, girls, whatever, you pull them to the side. They're your friend. So I would always pull him to the side and just be like, nah, man, you know, and I give him my strong opinion. Like this, this is not the route, man. He was very susceptible to me. Brad was very like, not naive to that extent, but like vulnerable. Yes. And very, like I was saying earlier, lively. He was just like a young spirit. And I knew that from the jump. Like when I was 14, 13, he was jumping in the room. He's just so, you know, open and, and honest and, and so I knew he couldn't handle some of these things that he was jumping into. That was my opinion, you know, at 19 or whatever. And I was like, hey, man, you need to pull back. Like, stop hanging around with these people. You know, you bring these people around or you hang around with them. And like, that's not where you want to be. You're missing some indicators, you know, and let me help you find, see those. Like, stay away from that. Stay away from these dudes, you know, and this, this gang or whatever. Cause they said they can freestyle. You bring them to the studio and now, you know, they're over there trying to get stuff off the studio and you don't know what to do. And I said, look, let me help you with the beginning. Just don't even, you love everybody. I get it, but you got to be careful. And um, I had the same talk with him about the use, like what, what he transitioned into and what he was doing. And, um, you know, it was kind of on the outside of that whole click. I didn't really use drugs or anything like that, you know, and I was like the, the straight edge, not clean and sober, but I was a little, you know, again, my upbringing was a little different than everybody else's. You know, my father passed when I was young, so I had to kind of stand up as the man of the house. So that was the way I I processed everything. And so that's where that name Ross and G comes from. It's like Uncle Marshall. You know, it's like, oh, Mr. Ross and G, Mr. Upright, you know, Mr. Because that's what Ross means. It's like Rasta, you know, like you have Ross Michael and Ross. Right. It's like a title, like, you know, King Marshall, you know. So that's where that came from because I was always the the one trying to find true north, you know, the true moral north or whatever. You know, always the one that had some words to say about what we're doing wrong. You were definitely a stabilizing factor. Yeah, you know, and, and, and I'm, I'm happy about that. And it worked, you know, and it, it still has a good impression. But at the same time, it really did frustrate people. You know, it definitely frustrated uh, uh, Brad. Um, to some extent, because he just wanted to be left alone. And I think he truly knew he was struggling, but he's like, yeah, why are you bringing that up? Like, I know I'm struggling. It's like, yeah, but let's sort it out. Let's unpack it. You know, let's get in there. Let's dig in. I don't want to dig in. So after time, you know, multiple times of this stuff, 
And I was in a lot of bands at that time, to be honest with you. So when we got back from the tour, I was in a band called Freesia. Before that, I was in a band called Horace Dolores, Garbocrat, um, uh, World Trust. And so I was in all these bands around the same time I was in Sublime. And so nobody knew which one was going to blow up or do anything. I loved the music I was making with all of them. And to be honest, I had a real passion for Sublime and I had a real passion for Freesia. And so when I talked to Brad, you know, he had, he had gotten into some pretty deep drugs. And I was like, no, nah, man, you know, this isn't going to work. So it affected our shows. And he would, you know, just kind of freestyle and not play guitar. Me and Eric were just playing bass and drums. And he just kind of freestyled some Vanilla Ice or NWA lyrics or Ghetto Boys. And it wasn't the music that we wrote or, or people paid $5 to see. So I told him, I was like, man, I can't do this anymore. You know, I can't see you like this, doing this, you know, you got to straighten out, you know, you got to get your head out of the clouds, man, bring it back down to earth. This isn't you. This isn't who I signed up to, to be in a band with. So we went our separate ways, came back when they got the deal to do the self-titled, kind of rejoined as the band's DJ, but I still play drums on, uh, what I got and, um, did a lot of programming and beats for that record, April 29th and doing time. And so that is kind of the long and short of Sublime. Yeah. I, I think that one of the things that a lot of fans don't realize is, um, and you know, I want to point it out. I know we have some diehards that listen, but for those who aren't, Marshall was a member of the band Sublime. He wasn't a fill-in. He wasn't a guy that they were kicking around with. You were in the band. And like you said, it's almost like you never left because your presence has felt so strong. And for those who don't know, um, on the self-titled album, it's Marshall playing drums on what I got and not Bud. How does that even happen? Yeah, well, I appreciate that, Jared. Um, those are some some kind words and you know, it's, it's true. And, and it's, it's ironic that if Brad was here, he'd have been the first one to say everything that you just said from day one, it would have never been any different. He would have said anything else. So I don't know if it was label. I don't know who kind of put this agenda out there to kind of make it like, it just makes sense though. I mean, you got Bud, Eric and Brad, three guys, shaved heads, tattoos. It makes sense. Like that's the band. Just let that be the band. Like, okay, cool. Not, not Miguel, not me. You know, it is what it is. I don't know who made that decision. I know it wasn't Brad because he wasn't around. So just kind of got pushed to the wayside. And, and after, you know, a decade or so, it, it, it kind of nerved me a little bit. I was like, man, this isn't the real story. Like, you know, so I started talking in interviews about stuff and, you know, other things started surfacing because for the longest time, it was just, you're a drummer and Shabana. Nah, it was Bud. Like, Everybody, everybody would tell me I'm wrong. And his brother, even when we were at the MTV Video Music Awards, he's like, you going to go up on stage for what I got, you know, was up for a, a, an award for the video. You're going to go up on stage if uh, they win? I was like, yeah, I mean, I play drums on the song. He's like, what? You play drums on this song? So even Bud's brother, who was around in the scene doing merchandise for Sublime and everything, he didn't know I played drums on the song. So it's like a secret. However, if you talk to David Kahn, who produced the track, he would have told you right away, of course, I played drums on it. I mean, and, you know, the, the, the reasons were what they were, but I had a skill set and I brought it to the band and we used it, you know, and uh, yeah. 
Yeah, you guys did. And I know it's a hot take, Marshall. And, you know, there's a lot of these online pages and fan groups for Sublime. And, um, you know, I, I like to tell it how it is. Bud is an amazing drummer and I love everything Absolutely. that he did with Sublime. But I say it time in and time out. Marshall Goodman was the best drummer to ever be in the band Sublime. Uh, and I truly, I truly feel that. And as a fan, um, you know, I'm, I'm entitled to that opinion, but, um, you know, it, it's, it, it's just something that I think it's overlooked quite a bit. And the look on people's faces when I go, uh, is there anything yellow lover about Bud? Do you think? Because <laughs> I think Brad's talking That's about funny. there. That's funny. You bring that up. Yeah. Um, so everybody used to think, well, not everybody, but there was a, I worked at Wells Fargo bank. Right during the time where they got signed, I had gone, you know, Brad and I went to Cal State Long Beach at the same time. When I was 19, he was going for business um, marketing, and I was in for business finance, I believe. We we're both business majors. And so I would go to some of his classes and whatnot, and he kind of helped me out with some assignments here and there, and you know, because he was into the upper division when I was, you know, in my second year or something like that. So we spent a lot of time together. That was my point. A lot of time together outside of just the band. So we were in school together. We were doing that thing together. And he would come to some of these shows of these other bands that I was in because he wanted to come see me play. We were friends. And so when he came to see World Trust play, he was like, man, why don't you play like that with Sublime? And I was like, and World Trust was like a kind of a funk rock. You know, it was big in that time. You know, the uh, Fishbone was doing a lot of it, the Chili Peppers. There was a ton of bands doing it, that style, like funk rock. So World Trust was like that. And I was hitting hard, you know, playing loud. He's like, why don't you do that with Sublime? I was like, it's a different style. Like, the, this music isn't calling for that. You know what I mean? Some songs do, but not all of them. And he came and saw Freesia. And so Freesia, um, we were like a band that was in the Black Rock Coalition, you know, all black members. And um, we played hardcore. It was like metal, right? And um, again, Sublime and Freesia were my two favorite entities. And the Freesia, because it was, you know, a social movement. Honestly, Sublime was a social movement too for, for, for Long Beach to show, you know, the world that America is like this bag of mixed cultures, always has been, well, from a certain period, and is like a, a hub of that, more so than L.A., I mean, not New York because you got all the immigration coming, but Long Beach is a hub of culture. A lot of different cultures are there and Sublime brought them together, you know, via music, different styles of music, but it was a so, it had social implications too, but Freesia, that was like the black rock band and I was, you know, doing my thing in there and we, and the, um, guitarist, Wendell Colbreth, his nickname was Breath. Um, he gave me that nickname, Yellow Lover. And it was mostly probably because I was a little awkward when I was 19. You know, I didn't know how to talk to women. You know, I was just whatever. I tried and they were, ah, nah, it's all good. And I was, you know, tall, whatever, and just didn't know how to handle the rock when it was passed to me all the time. You know, so he, it was kind of a, a, a tease. Like, oh, here we go, Yellow Lover. You know what I mean? And, and yellow in reference to skin tone, because again, African-American, the black community, that's kind of what happens, like high yellow, you know, there's all these expressions and terms, you know, uh, you know, dark skin, light skin, all this stuff. So yellow was a reference to my skin tone where people at the bank 
Wells Fargo when I was working there, you know, in in the like 94, 95, they thought one of the guys there thought it was a reference like I loved Asian people. And it was like, Wait, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I was like, oh, you thought it meant like I love Asians, like yellow lover. I was like, nah, man, what the heck is wrong with you? That was I thought that was extremely funny. But um, yeah, Brad heard Breath call me that in passing. He's probably like, hey, yellow lover, grab that uh, cord. You know, and Brad was like, what? What did he just say? And so he started calling me yellow lover because he heard that nickname. And that's where that got brought into all of the sublime stuff. So, yeah, 40 Ounce to Freedom, all of our nicknames are on there. Cricket, Texas, Spock, Dr. Spock, yellow lover was all of our nickname. And uh, Brad pulled that in from Breath, um, the guitarist of Freesia. That was his nickname for me. That's but really yes, cool. I never knew where that came from. That's it. And, um, you know, in reference to what you said about Bud being a great drummer, I 1000% agree with you. He is, no question. We just have different skill sets. And that was kind of my reference before to what I got and why I played on it. And, um, you know, when I was 19, I was in all these bands and everything because, you know, I, I'm a quick study. When I'm passionate about something, I get after it. So I got my first drum set when I was 15. And by 18, 19, I was playing in Sublime, right? And I did 40 Ounces to Freedom when I was 19 after playing drums for four years. Of course, I've been around music my whole life, so I, I knew the dynamics of music, which is more important than actually playing the instrument. But every day of high school, the jazz band, orchestra, you know, stage band, marching band, I just dove in to playing drums from 15 on. And so... My first year of college, when I was 18, I was in the steel drum orchestra. I was in the jazz band. So I was like playing. I was reading music, you know, the whole nine, you know, metronome conscious and, and time conscious and, and all this stuff. And again, that's one of the skill sets that I brought to Sublime, where no one else really in the band had that level. And that's another reason I was Uncle Marshall, you know, is because I was the you know, dictator of music theory, like, oh, you got to do that. You know, why are you doing that? Not too heavy, but I was like, you know, that's a shuffle. You're playing it swing, Eric. You need you need to pick which way you want to go. You know, you either play it straight or you do a shuffle swing. So which way do you want to go? And he's like, oh, what? What are you talking about? So I kind of entered in these these concepts that they weren't really privy to. And then... Where did this love for music come from, from your family? I mean, obviously, like... My condolences on your loss of Ruth, but she was very talented as well. So, you, you know, it's, it's anyone who is born, you know, a human being will have a love for music because, you know, we're auditory being if, if we're fortunate to, you know, have all of our hearing intact and all of that. Um, and sounds, and even for animals, sounds impact us. So we're all musical. And how I completely believe it's an environmental, it's a nurturing thing where someone becomes a musician. You just have to allow it to exist. But if you deter and do other things, then people become non-musical. Like, oh, I was never good with music. That's not the case. You grew into that somehow. Your life was taken that direction. So for us, we were all nurtured. You know, music was important. So my mom was singing. When we were all in her womb, she was a singer and doing all these things, you know, similar to Brad, right? I mean, you guys, your mom sang, right? I'm from for you guys. 
play, mostly played the flute and piano, but yeah, melodic, right? And your dad as well, right? Yeah, very. Your dad as well. So Absolutely. what that does is when children are small, music is around. Some people don't have music around because they're not into it, and that's where it's not like nurtured. Yeah. It's not carried forward. But we we all nurtured, have it. Yeah. We all have it. No question. So my mother sang. My father was a guitarist. Um, my mom still sings, by the way. My um, father was a guitarist in Chicago, rhythm guitarist, and he was pretty well known among the what they call the chit- Chitlin circuit when people came from the Mississippi Delta playing blues. Um, they would go up the Mississippi and stop at all the you know juke joints, the the black owned bars, and go up to Chicago. And by the time it got to Chicago, blues sounded a little different, turned into R&B, Little Richard, and everything like that. But Helen Wolf, um, T-Bone Walker, uh, Muddy Waters, all these blues players used to do the Chitlin Circuit. And when they got to Chicago, all of them, my dad played with all the people I mentioned, wanted Ray Goodman on rhythm guitar. So he got a chance to play with all these guys. And my uncle told me this a long time, like in 2005, my uncle told me this, my dad's youngest brother. So and, and my dad was born in 1929. So he, you know, that's how he was able to play with all these legends, you know, because he was he had me late in life. And he was the youngest of or the second youngest of 12 children. So very old, traditional family, raised on a farm, southern mm-hmm. Illinois, moved to Chicago when he was 12, moved out on his own and um, played with all of those greats. He actually toured with Otis Redding for a while. He was in Otis Redding's band. Wow. So. He became, he went to the Korean War, came home, uh, became a tool and die maker. He was very mathematical. Um, and then he got into law enforcement. And so when we came out here to California, he was, um, he got into security. So I think out there he was a state trooper or something like that in, in Illinois. But then when he came out here, he worked with uh, Universal at the studio and we actually brought me and my sisters over, my mom, to see Bob Marley play. He did a show there one time at Universal Studio Lot. Wow. And we got a chance to see Bob Marley when we were really young. My dad got us in there. My mom wanted to go and all this stuff. Um, so your dad was a real badass. My dad was, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he did his thing. Wow. And, you know, it's, it's, it's him who set me on that path to be who I am, what I am, where I interacted with Brad, you know, caring, sometimes a little overbearing based on, you know, his background and other people's background from that scene, because I just was raised by a guy that was from a different era. You know, he was raised on a farm. Like I said, he was a, 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 a war veteran, combat veteran, law enforcement, just a whole different path, you know, and then he passed when I was 13 and told me, take care of your mom and your sister. So I had this mentality that was like, okay, I had to go get it. I got to do something, you know, it's, there's no time. Like, I got to make this happen, you know. And, and so my sister and I both the same, you know, she was valedictorian. She went to UCLA medical school and then she fell off track, got into drugs. But um, just go get it. Go get it mentality. So, um, yeah, that's where the background of music comes from. And then, you know, like I mentioned earlier, Ruth was into everything. She introduced me to The Cure. She introduced me to Bob Marley because back then I was just into hip hop. I was into hip hop and kiss. What was it Run DMC and Kiss? <laughs> That's pretty varied. Wow. <laughs> there. 
Run DMC, Kiss. I loved Eric Clapton. I loved uh, Phoebe Snow from my mom, Fleetwood Mac from my mom. I loved all the songs. I know the whole Rumors record front to back. And yes, I loved Kiss. That's awesome. I was a huge <laughs> Run DMC fan back then. Yep. Um, so I think it sounds like your dad probably also informed a lot of your later life decisions as well. I mean, he did so many different things, as have you. Um, clearly, you didn't just stay in music, although you did a lot of other things. As you know, we mentioned before, Long Beach Dub All Stars. I know you've done a lot of producing for a bunch of different bands, and then you got into politics. What what brought that about? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's just, it's just a thing. Like, I, I think I have ADD, to be honest with you. It's not to a, <laughs> to a bad level, you know, where I can't sit, but I have ADD of the brain. Can't focus just on one thing for too long. I can. Absolutely. Like That's being good, a father, though. like That's being a good. father, I, I can focus on that. That's a hundred percent of my time, you know, can be put on that. But like all those bands I was in, you know, it's like, come on, man, pick one or two, you know, but dang, man, you know, like four or five <laughs> bands, you know, and all of them are good. Like, just pick one. And I didn't look at it like, yeah. yeah, you know, it's just so many different styles of music. I had so much on my mind. I just want to do it all, you know, just make it happen. So that's kind of at the core of of why so many different things. And, and of course, for me, too, it's wanting to understand the essence of something. So with drums, what's the essence of it? You know, rudiments. Where do rudiments come from? Uh, Cuba. Where does Cuba get it from? West Africa. How does West Africa do it? Does it like this? You know, you have the Mozambique rhythm. You have all these different cascades. You got this. You got that. It's like, okay, cool. Got it. Is that the end? Yeah, that's the end. All right, next. What's next? You know, where does the piano come from? You know, and that's just the way my mind works. So I dig deep and try to find the core of almost everything I do. And so in music, it's like creating music. I want to be able to do this myself. So what do I need to learn? Music production. Oh, okay. How do you do that? How's everybody doing it? Four track, uh, cassette, ADAT, you know, DAWs, digital audio workstations now. Okay. What is there? There's, there's uh, Pro Tools. There's, where do we start on? Um, I forget which one it was. It was an old school program that we recorded the first Long Beach Dub All Stars record on. I wanted to learn it. So I got the program. I sat at home and learned it, learned the concepts. Same with drum machines. Just learn how, you know, quantizing, you know, nuances for the drums. You could, oh, this has that. What does that do? So that's just how my mind works. And that's kind of that ADD reference. Like I always want to dig in. Brad actually was exactly the same way. So him and I, yeah, we talk nice. about history. We talk about sociology. We talk about mm. all of that. Him and I talked about the same amount of time about that as we did music, maybe even more because even music had some social historical elements to it. And we would talk about it, you know, these songs, you know, yeah. um, the sound of the police, KRS one, he's like, Oh man, yeah. Black history, you know, this is dope. And this is their reference. And I had it all for him, you know, because that was my world, you know, being a, a, a black man in this country, yet my mom is white and, you know, the black designation comes because that's pretty much, what I am to society. What I am to me is, you know, Native American, my grandma, um, my father's African American, my mom's Irish, French. That's me. If you ask me, that's what I tell you. But the world, this is society rather, sees me as a black man. So I couldn't get away from it. I was like, fine, I'm a black man. And so just that concept alone, I would talk to Brad about that. And he's like, whoa, man, that's crazy. And he'd start asking questions. And, he'd, you know, we just dive into that for like an hour. And everyone else around us would be like, oh my God. It's something that 
you know, we're just intrigued by so much. Um, it's like that, uh, that dog in up, you know, he, he's talking about something all of a sudden he goes squirrel. You know, you see something over there and you just drawn to it. You know, you just look away for a second. Now you're distracted. And with the essence of, of what th- make th- makes things work. So that's why I got into music production, learned about all of these uh, programs, um, doing beats and sampling. And I was very technical, taking apart speakers when I was young, because, again, I wanted to know how they work. So when I got to Sublime, if somebody needs to figure out how to work a machine, I'd dig in there. Where Michael was the one who took the manual and threw it away, I was the one who took the manual and read it. So they could always count on me to if they needed to figure out how to do something. Something got stuck. They would just come to me and, and... very technical with everything. So that's for music with politics. Um, I would consider myself an elected official. I don't really like politics, you know, the, the strive for power. Um, but it's a necessity. Again, reference to the society, you know, it's a necessity. Everyone's constantly struggling, struggling for power. So if you choose not to participate in that power struggle, you're probably, you know, you choose not to sit at the table, so you're most likely on the menu. So for me, it's like it's a necessary evil to get in there and struggle for that power. But I want to do it in a way that is more based in morality, you know, more based in what's right and what's wrong. Understanding that first, having a true north before I engage in any politics, because I'm really good at politics. I can do it. I do it well. But I make sure that what I do is best for my city. I'm an elected official, local government. So everything I do, that's the core. That's my true north. What's best for the city, not what's best for me to keep doing what I'm doing and this and that. Cause that now you're into campaigning and all that nonsense. It's not really nonsense. You gotta, you gotta stay in the position, but I don't want to get too drawn in to all of that stuff. So it's weird having the past that I have with the people I was around. Cause if Brad knew I was an elected official, he'd be like, what the heck? Why? Like, why would you go that direction? But, um, <laughs> Well, it's it's definitely a, a turn that I don't think most saw coming. But, you know, it, it, people a lot of times, I think Sublime fans and the overall culture gets kind of a bad rap, but they don't realize that there's an elected official in Marshall Goodman. There's a doctor in Todd Foreman. Uh, you said how well-versed Brad was and, you know, uh, history and the different talk. I mean, smart bunch of guys came out of that crew. Yeah, absolutely. Brad was a writer. I say this all the time. He was a brilliant writer. That's the reason he excelled. So whether it's tongue in cheek, whether it's Bukowski esque, which I know he was a fan, it's just speaking off the riff. It's not rhyming or it's like cat in the hat rhyming. It's all chosen to express emotion. And he was brilliant with that. And people will judge him like, that's not good poetry. It's like, nah, but that's him. And it's brilliant. Like, that's exactly what he wanted to say. As crass as it is, that's exactly how he wants you to feel about it. Like, that's what he's doing. So, yeah, Brad, you're right. There's a lot of, like, undercover things um, people were doing in the background that weren't, honestly, all that popular in this circle. You know, being smart, going to school, it's like that wasn't the popular thing in the circle. It's more like being punk rock and you know being rogue and rugged was the popular thing. You know how stupid can you get? You know, you know whatever. It, it, it's and it's all in good fun, but some of us were you know had other other plans and, and and other things going on in the background. 
But um, this politics thing didn't come until, you know, what, 2015? I just wanted to, I lived in a city at that time. Let me see. Probably 11 years or so. And I wanted to just give back. I was just like, let me do something. You know, they're having concerts in the park. They're having Arbor Day. Okay, who puts this on? Who puts on Arbor Day? Who plans it? Well, the Community Activities and Beautification Committee plans this. Okay, what else do they do? Memorial Day, tree lighting ceremony, concerts in the park. Oh, concerts in the park. I'm a musician. Okay, yeah, you should go. We have a couple of openings. You should go uh, apply for the position. I get the application. It's like six pages long. I'm like, oh, man, I don't want to fill this thing out. You know, what is this? <laughs> but I ended up filling it out. I was like, all right, is this what I got to do? Okay, you got to go interview with the mayor and mayor pro tem. Oh, man, what? You know, this is going too far now. But I was like, all right, let me just go ahead and interview with these guys, whatever. Ended up getting the position. When I'm on, on, you know, I'm doing the concerts, I'm going and looking at all the cover bands, letting them know which ones are great and not, and kind of talking to some residents to see how they feel, you know, doing my due diligence, research. You know, this is what I love doing now. I'm problem solving, just like producing or making a song. So we get on to the general plan update, which is like every 15 years you do this as a, as a, as a city, as a local government, you have to have a general plan and it's a 15 year cycle. So it just so happens that this general plan update falls during my second year, I think, on this uh, committee. And so, wow, now I get this like 100 page document. It's talking about zoning. It's talking about, you know, FAR. It's talking about density. It's talking about all these detailed things. So I'm like, oh, heck yeah, it's like a puzzle. So I go in with the community development director. I'm saying, what does FAR mean? You know, what, what is this? What's happening? So he gives me the breakdown. It's a crash course. I'm like, okay. Because they want the committee to give, they want us to give feedback on this general plan. They want input. The council is looking for all the input from the different committees. So I took it serious. They sent me this thing in this red folder. You know, it was like the string attachment. It was wound. I was like, oh man, you know, it's like confidential. I'm like, I'm feeling all official. You know, this is great. <laughs> so I review this general plan, give my feedback. And what I didn't understand at that moment was that these committees are used to vet people for counsel. So in the fact that I did my research, research, talked to the community development director, talked to the city manager, um, went to sites to look at things because if they're talking about rezoning an area and potentially having, you know, more housing or this or that, the other, I need to, if, if I'm going to give an opinion, I need to go look. So I went and I checked it out. And so I'm doing that with the community development director and we go and we do ribbon cuttings. You know, all the committees can come to the ribbon cuttings and all that. I'm at one ribbon cutting. I'm at the end of this big, long table. All the business owners are there. Most of the staff from the city, most of the council's there at the end, the other end of the table, Gerard Goodhart, who was a council member said openly and out loud to everybody. Hey, Marshall, we have a vacancy coming up on the city council. What do you think about running? I said, I don't think about running at all. Like, not nothing. Zero. I'm good on this committee. Are you kidding me? Like, well, no, of course not. This is way over the top. But I guess based on my review and comments, the community development director went back to council and was like, hey, this guy, you know, he may be good. So Gerard took the initiative to ask me and to be my mentor, actually, because I ended up going to council. But he was the guy that helped me in that time. Uh, transition so it was kind of a 
just a fluke thing. You know, I just got in there and I guess they saw some potential and inquired. And when I told them no, now I'm good. And I really did. I it was steadfast on that. I don't want to do this. Like, I'm good on the council. I was serving as chair, you know, or, or good on the committee. I'm the chair of the committee. I'm doing fine. This is fun. Went home to my wife and was like, you never believe what they did at the ribbon cutting today. And I told her the same story I told you guys. And she's like, I said, I said, of course I'm not interested. She, she stopped me. She's like, wait, what? What are you talking about? Why would you not do that? Like, you're meant for this. This is what you do. Like, yeah, you need to do this, Marshall. And I stopped. Just everything stopped. The world stopped spinning for a second. I considered like, okay. Cause that's what I do with my wife. You know, her words mean everything. And she's my, you know, partner. She's my looking at me from the outside. You know, I trust myself. I'm very confident. All these things, very ambitious, but I also trust her because she's my partner looking at me from the outside. So when she says something like that, so definitively, I pull up all the way and I said, okay, I'm going to look into it. So that was it. I went and started meeting with the city manager, meetings with past council members and, you know, did my due diligence on that. Just kind of see what the position entailed and uh, the rest is history. All right, guys, I know this is something that you're not used to happening here on Bradley's house, but we're calling an audible. After we had this amazing conversation with Marshall Goodman Anna reached out to Kelly and myself, and she said, guys, this show is going to be long. So we want to make sure that everybody's able to enjoy it, and we're going to go ahead and cut it right here. We're going to make this into a two-parter. So we're going to have you guys come back for the next episode. We're going to do part two with Marshall. He's going to tell a ton more stories about growing up with Brad, recording the self-titled album, and give us some information about his time in the Long Beach Dub All-Stars and what he's up to right now. So this isn't your typical closing. We haven't gotten into Marshall's favorite Sublime song yet. We're not going to lead you out with a song. We're going to save that for the ending of part two. And we'll come back with Marshall and you guys will hear the rest of that conversation. Please remember to check out our friends at HumbleCollectiveCBD.com. Use code SUBLIME and save 25% off your purchase. Again, that's HumbleCollectiveCBD.com. Check out all of their amazing products and make sure you use the show's code SUBLIME and save yourself 25%. And we've also got some information about another amazing company that's going to be coming on board and working with us here on Bradley's House Podcast, and that's Compass Detox. We're going to hear from their CEO and find out what they're doing to help folks recover and recover the proper way. Until next time, for Kelly Noel, I'm Jared Orr, and this has been Bradley's House.